This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Back to New Books in Politics, the New Books Network podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Bill Sher. Today, we're talking to the senior political correspondent from Yahoo News and the new author of the book, Camelot's End, published by 12, John Ward. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks, Bill. I'm so happy to be here. So this is a fascinating look into the 1980 Democratic presidential primary between the incumbent president, Jimmy Carter, and Senator Ted Kennedy. And it's it was a great choice, in my opinion, uh, to do a deep dive into, because so many people don't know the backstory, don't know how bitter the contest was. And I, I think, surprisingly, both Carter and Kennedy are looked upon very uh, with great reverence amongst people on the left uh, to this day uh, and don't really uh, fully grasp that the two people really hate each other for their for which their entire lives. It's interesting that you mentioned that uh, they are looked on with great reverence. Maybe it's because I grew up in a conservative household. I don't know. That's my general perception is that, yes, Kennedy is is revered among many Democrats, although I think since you know, these things go through cycles. And I think with Kennedy, after he passed away in 2009, um, he, you know, as is normally the case when people die, he was lionized then. But I think you've seen that snap back a little bit with the the release of the movie about Chappaquiddick. Um, so I think things are kind of evening out for him. Carter, on the other hand, I think is mostly, I mean, he's thought of as a good man by many people but a weak president. And I think that's sort of a, perhaps a misunderstanding, um, certainly of his core character, um, because I think he is much tougher and even, uh, well, others have used the word mean. I think he's just stronger willed than people realize maybe. Um, But we can come back to that. The reason I got interested in in all of this is really just, I didn't, I wasn't familiar with, Um, the story. And some people started telling me about uh, Ted Kennedy uh, being chased around the stage on the last night of the convention in 1980 by Jimmy Carter. And uh, they were saying that Kennedy was drunk and this was on national television on, on live TV. And, and, uh, and I, I just was intrigued right from the get go. I had been looking for a book idea. And so this seemed like a good one because everybody thinks of 1980 as the year of Ronald Reagan, which of course it is. He became president and ushered in 12 years of Republican dominance in, of the presidency. But this was kind of the other side of that story. And uh, and I thought that's interesting because there's not a lot of incentive for people to talk about the times that they lost. And um, in addition, history is written by the winners oftentimes. So this seemed like a good opportunity to explore uh, a rather unexplored portion of that period of history. Uh, and uh, perhaps we're uh, normally I might ask this question at the end of the interview, but since we're on the subject, what do you think the outcome of the Carter-Kennedy primary, which uh, Carter beat Kennedy in the primary uh, for the general election, but Kennedy uh, arguably eroded his stand, Carter standing in the process. Uh, how do you think that impacted the Democratic Party uh, beyond that point? 
beyond that year, um, well, there were there were a couple things. I mean, the subtitle of the book is uh, that it broke the Democratic Party, and and some people have quibbled with that. And I'll and I'll get to the historical reason for saying saying it that way. But I think first you have to recognize that there were deep, bitter, very personal divisions that came out of this year, and uh, it is split. It split the party and the operatives in the party and the insiders in the party into two camps, really, based on who they had supported, uh, Kennedy or Carter. That And those camps lasted certainly throughout the 80s and in some cases remain today. There are people who worked on Carter's campaign in 1980 uh, who are still persona non grata among Kennedy people, people like Jerry Rafshun, his media consultant who ran commercials, um, you know, kind of hinting and, and hinting at Kennedy's um, past uh, infidelities and certainly at his disgraceful uh, behavior at Chappaquiddick. Um, the other way that this fight really divided and broke the Democratic Party is more in the sense of their coalition of voters that had kept them the dominant political party for 50 years up until 1980. It's really important for people to recognize that from from Franklin Delano Roosevelt to 1980, 1932 to 1980, for 50 years, the Democrats held control of Congress, both chambers, um, really most of that time. There was only four years during the 50s where the Democrats did not control the Senate and they had the House that entire time. They also had the presidency for about two thirds of that period. And since 1980, there has been no party that's been as dominant as the Democrats were for those 50 years. Both the Republicans and Democrats have both been uh, within striking distance of becoming the majority party in Congress. And they've kind of uh, seesawed back and forth in the presidency. And so based on their loss of support in the South and in parts of the Midwest and Rust Belt, 80 was the breaking point uh, of that coalition that FDR had built. And that coalition was uh, somewhat not, uh, it, so it was not ideologically pure. It was, it was a North-South coalition, and there was a great difference in character of, of, a, of a Northern Democrat and a Southern, and a Southern Democrat. And it, it, it would suggest that the Kennedy insurgency um, you know, exposed the default lines uh, within that coalition. Yeah, I mean, the South migrated away from the Democrats largely because of the Democrats' support for civil rights for African Americans. And if you look at the Rust Belt and the Midwest, um, there were a couple factors. The the big city bosses that had controlled politics through 1968 uh, really lost a lot of their power over the party, their ability to, um, you know, bring large numbers of delegates to the conventions and tip uh, primary uh, primary nominations one way or the other. That was really lost after the reforms of 1972. But there were also racial uh, reasons why the Midwest and the Rust Belt moved away from Democrats as well. There's a book called Chain Reaction by Tom and Mary Edsel um, that talks about how uh, there was a feeling among white ethnic recent immigrants um, or children of immigrants in those uh, big cities or the or the exurbs, you know, the Reagan Democrats, um, who felt that the Democrats were increasingly standing for um, taxing them to distribute uh, government resources to poor minorities. And so there was a sense not just of uh, racial animus in the South, but also in the upper Midwest and Rust Belt. Now, uh- to go back to the beginning of your book and the beginning of the, the Carter and Kennedy stories, uh, you depict Carter in, in his early political career as someone who very uh, cannily, you know, e- even uh, in, a, in a Machiavellian way, uh, navigated uh, the, uh, the civil rights question, the question of racial equality, sort of toggling back and forth between being a face of the new South who was ready to embrace civil rights and someone pandering to the old South and pandering to um, uh, the racism uh, of of, of the past. Uh, What did you learn in uh, tracing Carter's origin story? And and what did that tell you about about the man himself? 
Yeah, there's a lot to that question. I mean, if you look at his two runs for governor, it's revealing in terms of what it tells you about the politics of the South during that time. This was 1966 and 1970. And he ran as a racial moderate his first time around, and he lost. And the guy who ended up winning the governorship that year was Lester Maddox, who was famous for standing in the doorway of his Atlanta restaurant with a, um axe handle um, and blocking African-Americans from entering. Um, so that guy became governor. And uh, four years later, Carter um, ran a much different campaign. He was not moderate on race or progressive. He really um, went out of his way to win over the white supremacist vote uh, and those leaders in uh in the south and a lot of that you know kind of revolved around george wallace who was just next door in alabama um wallace was you know he ran for president in 1972 and won five southern states and um i think it's really democratic primary correct yes that's right and i think it's instructive actually no i think that's in the general as an independent um it was 60 i think it was 72 um I'm not sure if I have the year right. I know he won five states. I thought it was the year that McGovern won, uh, ran, um, but we can check that afterwards. The point is, the point is, Wallace was a major force in national politics at that time, and I think it's instructive to recognize that uh, even Kennedy himself, when he was thinking about running for president in 1976, this is not well known. I talked to to people who had worked for Kennedy who did not know this. He went to Alabama and sat next to George Wallace and gave a speech praising Wallace to Wallace's supporters um, as a way of trying to blunt the resistance to his potential run for president in the South. Um, you know, white supremacy and racism were still uh, really vibrant threads throughout uh, the South at this time. Uh, so Carter wins the governorship in 1970 uh, with the help of the white vote far more than the black vote. But he doesn't, like, he doesn't govern that way, correct? Well, I mean, yeah. So to kind of get to the latter part of your question, he runs that campaign for governor in 70. He wins. And we I talked about Carter, about this with Carter. And he basically said, I didn't uh, say anything racist, but I didn't do anything to turn off those white supremacist voters. There were things in his ha in his campaign that happened, perhaps without his knowledge, that were uh, you know outright racist. But anyway, he wins, and there are several accounts at the time that he is he appears to be quite unhappy with the moral cost of his uh, of his victory, and that you know after he wins, he looks more downcast than anything else and he gives a speech the night of his victory basically saying it's not it's more important how you govern than it is how you uh campaigned and then when he gives his inaugural speech he says that the time for uh racial injustice is past and he gives a very racially progressive speech and there are literally groans of uh you know discontent from the audience and it's at that time that he begins to become this face of the new south so it's very much a realpolitik way of dealing with those uh, racist currents in our politics, sort of surfing them to, to get to power and then doing a 180 to basically, I think, let out what were his true colors, which were much more racially progressive um, and, and standing for racial justice. Now, while Carter is uh, uh, developing that evolution and, and, and pivoting towards a more uh, progressive view on race, uh, the Kennedy forces, and I probably most of the political world generally, don't think very much of Carter at all as a, as a national figure. Uh, uh, can you describe the, the, the early Carter-Kennedy relationship, uh, Kennedy being one who has always had his eye on the presidency and Carter being someone who had his eyes out, but nobody even realized it at the, at the time? Sure. And I think just before I get to that, I would just like to say, I don't think that Carter really evolved on race. I think he always was fairly um, equal minded and uh, and justice minded on race. But I think that he was willing to run a campaign that um, reached out to the to the racist uh, sentiments 
um, as a way of trying to change things, um, which is a very morally complicated, you know, premise, but um, but certainly interesting and and perhaps necessary at that time. Um, so the first time that Kennedy and Carter met was in 1974. This was in uh, Atlanta, actually, at the governor's mansion. Kennedy had just come back from a trip abroad to the Soviet Union to meet with uh, the leader of the Soviet Union. He was treated as a really a president in waiting. Uh, Nixon was embroiled in the Watergate scandal at that time. And so Kennedy comes back from that. He's going to give a speech at the University of Georgia, and he spends the night, the night before that speech, at Carter's mansion, at Carter's invitation, Carter had been planning already to run for president in 76, two years later. He had already been planning that for two years. And so Carter is looking at Kennedy as one of his main rivals for that. Kennedy, on the other hand, really doesn't know anything about Carter and doesn't think of him as anything more than a one-term governor. He was limited by the state constitution, who would basically be going back to running his family farm in two more years. So the ways in which these two guys came together in this meeting were, were really equal to the, to the ways that their backgrounds were so different from each other. Carter coming from uh, a poor, a very sort of destitute Southwest Georgia upbringing. His father was not poor, but by the, by the standards of that area, but they didn't have running water or electricity till he was around 10 years old. Kennedy obviously coming from privilege and, and wealth. And so Hunter S. Thompson, the famous Gonzo journalist, is actually there. Uh, he's accompanying Kennedy on this trip, and he, he witnesses this first interaction between them and then witnesses Carter's speech later that day at the University of Georgia after Kennedy's. Uh, Carter gives a very populist speech. He rips up his notes after Kennedy speaks because Kennedy's speech is too similar to what Carter had planned to say. And he gives this full-throated populist speech where he rips the establishment for their um their uh unwillingness to 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 implement reforms of the criminal justice system for their support of uh or maybe maybe more their rejection of uh of people like Martin Luther King Jr. uh and and Thompson really views it as a way of Carter trying to push Kennedy aside um, and say, you know, I'm the real alpha dog here, which is not the way we think of Carter. Um, so when uh, we get to 1976, um, Kennedy is not running for president. Uh, Chappaquiddick is still very much hanging over his head. Uh, Carter uh, upends the political world by winning Iowa uh, and really mastering the whole, I mean, at this point, the whole notion of a presidential primary is kind of new. Uh, based on the old the McGovern reforms that happened after '68, and Carter seemed to have grasped it better than a whole lot of others. Um, you know, we today look at both Carter and Kennedy as being consummate liberals, but there are a lot of liberals that didn't look at Carter in that way in 1976. Uh, how did they react to uh, Carter's quick uh, dominance of the '76 presidential primary? Well, he was never viewed as really a, you know, Democrat by the by the base. He was viewed as a Southern moderate, um, even though he was, you know, definitely much more progressive on, on civil rights. Um, he just wasn't of the party. He wasn't from Washington. He didn't spend he didn't know a lot of people in Washington. And he was he ran his whole campaign in 76 against Washington. And when he came to the White House after winning the presidency, he was very – he and his advisors, maybe his advisors even more so. These were young guys, Ham Jordan um, and, and uh, Jody Powell, his press secretary. These were young guys in their early 30s or so who were very immature um, and really had this chip on their shoulder, maybe a little bit of insecurity um, about – you know, the world that they were stepping into in Washington. And they acted out, out of that insecurity uh, in a way that was incredibly disrespectful to major party figures like the Speaker of the House, Tip O'Neill. Um, and so they they, they not only did, did nothing to uh, build support within the party infrastructure, they actually went out of their way to alienate key figures in the party. And so that's important to understand. And um, on on policy as well, Carter, as inflation ticked up during his presidency, his response was, we need to cut government spending to deal with this. Whereas 
more liberal Democrats like Kennedy wanted to increase government spending to help the poor and the working class who were being uh, really squeezed economically by inflation. You know, their trips to the grocery store were becoming more expensive, uh, major purchases because of higher interest rates such as a house or a car were increasingly out of reach. So the, the reaction to this pivot to this really key crisis of the late 70s um, was radically different based on where Carter and Kennedy stood. And, uh, you know, right, everybody thinks of Jimmy Carter as this great liberal in his post-presidency. And I think a lot of that revolves around his uh, views on the Middle East, um, where he's become very, very outspoken. Uh, in favor of the Palestinian cause. But when he was president, he was pretty conservative. So, I mean, this is sort of hard, I think, for uh, for folks to grasp, because when you think of an, an outsider-insider tension, usually it's the insiders who are more politically cautious, moderate to conservative, and from a Democrat perspective, an outsider normally is highly ideological, highly ambitious uh, uh, policy-wise, mm-hmm. and that's where your potential tensions lie. Uh, so how how is it that the the Washington insiders of the day were saying you're not liberal enough, uh, and and that's where uh, and, and that's where the breakdown occurs. I do think part of it revolves around comes back to the way that the primary had changed because you have single issue interest groups um, that are increasingly influential in this process, whereas before the 1968 or the post 68 reforms. It was more the party establishment, uh, the party bosses who ran things. And the party bosses are not going to be um, as uh, full-throated about one issue or another. They're going to be more interested in how do we get nominees who can win the general election. And so once the primary changes um, and it becomes less about the convention and more about uh state primaries and uh, winning over these single issue uh, groups who can mobilize voters in the primary, that begins to move the, that, that begins to really orient the energy of the party um, around these more liberal views. Um, and that is, that's sort of a sea change that's happening. Uh, even though Carter's able to run the table in 76, you know, because these young aides of his knew the system, knew how to run in in many states at once. Uh, Once he's in the White House, he is out of step um, with where the party is going because of these structural reform. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. We're talking with John Ward, author of Camelot's Inn. Um, so you say Carter, you know, in many respects, governed as a, as a, as a conservative, and certainly he uh, had, had a deregulatory agenda in certain certain respects, but he did create the Department of Education. He created the Department of Energy. He 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 made energy renewable energy uh, energy independence a huge uh, organizing principle of his domestic agenda. He um, he relinquished the Panama Canal, uh, uh, ending you know a long period of American imperialism in that area, or at least um, a step away from it and waged peace in the Middle East with the Camp David Accords. Did, did none of that impress upon liberals generally at the time that, hey, whatever differences we had in the past, whatever differences we have about healthcare, for example, one of Ted Kennedy's major um, uh, issues, he's still generally on our side here. Maybe this is not the time to have an inter-party ideological dispute. Was, was there a lot of currency to that argument on the left at the time, or was there mostly just enthusiasm for a, a, a leftist liberal insurgency in the, in the face of Kennedy. Well, I mean, I, I don't think deregulation is going to be something that uh, wins over the left flank of the party, even though Kennedy did work with them on some of that, I believe the airline deregulation. Um, 
I think there was just this underlying sense of uh, dissatisfaction with him among the grassroots. The establishment was really irritated by his uh, hands hands off approach, his uh, disdain for for working uh, with them and socializing with them. And then, as is always the case, you know these are sort of the background factors. But what really drove everything was the fact that by the middle of 1979, uh, the country's in crisis because of rising inflation and because of the energy um, panic, really. I mean, there was uh, gas lines all over the country. People were uh, squeezed economically and worried about, um, you know, getting shot in line for gas and um, because of outbreaks of violence in certain parts of the country. And and Carter's poll numbers just do a total no- nosedive. It's interesting that the beginning of his third year, which is where Trump is right now, Carter's poll poll numbers in the Gallup tracking poll were around fifty percent. They were good. He had just uh, clinched the peace deal in the Middle East and um, the energy uh, gas line issue, and then the um, the rising inflation. They they kind of crystallized all of this dissatisfaction inside the Democratic Party. And they and they and they made Democratic members of Congress begin to really worry about their reelection um, based on being dragged down by Carter's unpopularity. And that's when you get a real open door to a primary challenge, which is what ultimately kind of uh, pulls Kennedy into it. So why is it that if Carter's numbers were so bad and there was a sense that, well, if he's not going to win, might as well get a fresh face in there and what someone who's more in tune with us ideologically. Uh, how did Kennedy's uh, quests you know, go so awry? You know, it's always these unforeseen events that tend to drive uh, outcomes politically. And so as much as Carter is made incredibly vulnerable by these twin um, crises that develop in early and middle of 1979, there's another major event that turns the tables on Kennedy, and that is the hostage crisis in Iran. Three days before Kennedy is set to announce in November, uh, the hostages are taken in the embassy. The embassy in Tehran is seized. And um, that really rallies uh, the country around the president. And it's fascinating that the Iowa caucuses are about a month and a half, two months. It's January 22nd, I think. So that would have been November, actually, gosh, more than two months. But um, the Iowa caucuses then become not really a, a contest between Carter and Kennedy. They become a contest between Carter and the Ayatollah because to vote against Carter now is seen by some people as sort of a vote of disloyalty, a way to undermine the president at a time when his authority and power and the country's reputation is being questioned and undermined and challenged on the world stage. And so it rallies people to Carter. It pushes Kennedy kind of out of the picture. And um, the poll numbers reverse uh, within a couple of weeks. And so that's what really kind of makes it hard for Kennedy to gain any traction um, uh, once uh, as he heads into, into Iowa. And so, so Kennedy loses Iowa. He loses a lot of the early contests. Carter builds up a big delegate lead to the point where it's mathematically impossible for Kennedy to to win the nomination through the primary process, and yet he has a good late run uh, and doesn't and doesn't quit. What 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 explains how Kennedy managed to you know get a toehold even though it had been too little too late? It's like a it's like a seesaw. It's like watching the stock market you know be incredibly volatile where things are up and down and back and forth. Um, there's an element as the primary goes on of Democrats wanting to register disapproval of Carter. Um, and after a couple months have gone by of the hostage crisis, there's less of a sense of we need to rally with the president. There's more a sense of why has he not gotten them out of there yet? Um, even in April, uh, there's a failed rescue attempt by Carter. He sends uh, a number of helicopters into Iran, as well as uh, tanker planes. There's a horrible accident. Eight service members are killed. They don't get any of the hostages out. And uh, that's another symbol of failure. And so 
you're right. As as the primary drags on, Kennedy is very close to dropping out uh, at least one or two times, especially ahead of the New York primary. But then he wins the New York primary, and this goes on and on and on. And eventually, I think Kennedy basically decides, um, I'm going to see this through all the way and take it to the primary and uh, or to the convention. And it becomes a real question in the weeks before the convention uh, of whether or not Carter's going to lose the delegates, even though they are mathematically with him. There's a way in which the delegates could have been kind of reset at the Dick convention and allowed to vote for, um, you know, their, whoever they wanted in New York at Madison Square Garden. I talked to Tom Donnellan, who was Carter's um, delegate hunter, because I really did want to know from the people who were there on the ground, you know, how real of a concern was this? How concern, How realistic was the prospect of actually losing the nomination at the convention? And Donilon knew better than anyone. He was in charge of that operation. And he told me he was incredibly concerned right up to the, the day of the convention uh, that they were going to lose the nomination. I mean, when I was reading that part, I, I felt like living, it, I mean, it was exactly like 2016, but it was similar in that once it was clear that Hillary Clinton had a uh, insurmountable mathematical lead in the delegates and people were saying, hey, Bernie, hang it up. There's no way you can win. Him and his people would not focus on the math. They would be very dismissive of the math because they were trying to make the sort of larger point that if we can prove we are the more viable candidacy, we could take it to the convention. And that seemed to be the the, the logic that fueled the candy forces, uh, unlike Sanders, even taking it to the convention. Sanders uh, at least ended it after the primary process was over. But Candy believed that till almost the very last day that they could flip it around regardless of what the math was. And in 2008, Hillary Clinton could have easily had made the case that she should have run to the convention against Barack Obama. Part of the reason she didn't is that she had advisors tell, who had been active in the 1980 race telling her, how damaging it was to the party. I mean, she was there too. They were not telling her. They were reminding her. She was actually working for Carter in 1980, and they were reminding her about the cost of the party long-term uh, of the 1980 fight. And so that's a big reason why she didn't push it to the convention. So describe the drama of the convention itself. I mean, one thing that strikes me about Kennedy is that the one speech that is remembered of his more than anyone is the dream will never die speech, but almost every time the clip is shown, it's completely stripped of the context. I mean, this was an incredible uh, insult to the incumbent president that he was even giving this speech at all, and incredibly upstaged him. And that sort of that element of it, so central to the speech, is almost never talked about. Yeah, well, that's what happens when you have you know you know thirty second um, sound bites. But yeah, it was uh, it was Kennedy's swan song after uh, losing the fight. Uh, on the floor the previous night. And it's interesting that this speech obviously is featured prominently at the uh, Ed, Ted Kennedy Institute up in Boston, which is a huge and really impressive structure and a, and a great institution. Um, but the, the irony of it is that they never mentioned that he gave this speech uh, while running for president or having just conceded running for president. There's no mention at the Kennedy Institute, in fact, that he ever ran for president, which is just incredible. Um, but yeah, he gives this speech and it really invokes in the hearts and minds of a lot of Democrats, this sense of, did we pick the wrong nominee for president? Uh, because um, after a long grueling uh, primary, um, Kennedy ha had found his voice at some point throughout that process. Early in the primary, he was really just a lost candidate. It shows in his interview with Roger Mudd. It shows in his campaign in, in Iowa. I guess it was after the Iowa loss that he really felt like he could be unfettered in voicing a more liberal, uh, populist um, message. And he combines that with just this sense of, I think, accomplishment in his speech in New York. There's a sense in which you can almost see him exuding this feeling that he has finally sort of earned the respect of his dead brothers, uh, lived up to their legacy, captured some of the political magic that uh, John F. Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy 
had um, brought to life in the Democratic Party. And I think that that is the real significance of that speech for Teddy Kennedy. He does something that measures up to his brothers. And I think in some ways it frees him to then sort of go back to being a senator after that year. Um, and it, is there any repercussions for him? Is there, is, there, is there any hard feelings in the party after that say, how, how dare you upstage an incumbent Democrat and, and, and weaken his chances for reelection? Did he ever have, did he have to overcome uh, resentment after that or, is, or was it all upside for him? Well, there's plenty of resentment from Carter and from his camp, and certainly within the Democratic Party, there's some of that. Um, the real bitterness, I think, comes from what happens uh, after Carter's speech two nights later when Kennedy won't give Carter the um, hands clasped in the air together photo and really just humiliates Carter on national television, that scene that we discussed earlier in this conversation. Um, but you know, Carter Kennedy was, was a lifer in the democratic party. You know, he had been a Senator since 62. So that's almost 20 years by this point, he would remain a Senator for another 30 years after this. And so part of it is just, he stays in Washington. He keeps doing the work. Carter leaves Washington. And so that has a lot to do with how they're both thought of in the party. Carter, you know, um, is is thought of well by many people, but he's not as much of a presence, and he doesn't continue to do the hard work in Washington of trying to push legislation forward. I just think that has the most to do with um, sort of the, the goodwill or lack of it inside the party. There were plenty of of remembrances of of Ted's damaging run, but uh, when he was putting in the work year after year in the Senate. I think that was kind of put on the back burner by a lot of folks. And uh, I would imagine at the time, uh, you know, Carter's humiliation at that convention, just making him look very small, uh, that was uh, as embarrassing, humiliating as it was, maybe not discordant because he was already being depicted as in over his head as president for so long, buffeted by so many different events, you know, the hostage crisis being just, just one. Uh, but when you read your book and you see how you see his rise, you see his politically ruthless nature and steel core, it's it's harder to square. Uh, and there's, there's even that moment that you capture in the book about at the convention, he's trying to give praise to the recently passed Hubert Humphrey and he calls him Hubert Horatio Hornblower. Uh, I mean, can, can are you able to get in his head and, and figure out was he just so overwhelmed by the job at that point that he was just not on his A game, or is there is there some other explanation why he, he couldn't control his convention in the kind of uh, hard um, dominant way that he handled other political events in his rise? Yeah, one of the TV commentators after Kennedy walks off the stage at the convention says it would have been better if he had not come. It's just a miscalculation on Carter's part. Um, but driven by a sense of needing Kennedy, you know, um, to unite the party and believing that he would not do something as divisive as really refuse to, to give Carter this photo. I think there are moments during the summer of 79, um, a year earlier during, you know, during the, the period in which there's the gas lines, um, and Carter is doing a lot of international travel uh, right before his quote-unquote malaise speech. There are moments there where he definitely looks like he is just physically overmatched. He's too exhausted from travel, uh, and events are so are buffeting him so fast and furious that uh, he can't think straight, almost literally. Um, but I think in the in the summer of eighty at the convention, I think it's just a miscalculation that the Carter people thought there's no way that that Kennedy will do what he ultimately ends up doing. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think that's it. Um, now you had 
the chance to speak with Carter himself. You mentioned that uh, quickly before, but I do want to explore that a little bit. I mean, what, what was your measure of the man uh, and, and, and how, how open was he with you in, in reliving the past? Well, I thought it was uh, commendable that he would talk about it at all. It's not the most um, sunny memory of his political career, one of the darkest. And um, the fact that he sat down with me at all, I thought was uh, big of him. And uh, when we talked in Atlanta, he was, uh, you know, this was before his cancer diagnosis. This was 2015. Um, but he was very sharp, uh, totally there mentally um, and uh, remembered most of the things from that from that time pretty clearly. He said that Kennedy never shook his hand on the stage, which was not um, totally accurate. They did shake hands a couple of times, but it was the raised hands together thing that Kennedy wouldn't do. Um, he wasn't, um, he wasn't, uh, an incredibly warm person, but he wasn't, uh, unfriendly. He was businesslike. Um, I don't think he's ever been somebody who was a big small talk person. I don't think he's ever been known for his sense of humor. And so it was consistent really with a lot of what, you know, you read about him. Um, and I just felt like I was grateful to, that he would spend time talking about this with me. I recall, I think it was on Meet the Press, uh, Chuck Todd uh, played a clip of a, I think there's some kind of symposium of uh, looking back at his presidency and he was asked, um, what would you have done differently? And he said, I would have sent one more helicopter to to, uh, to rescue the hostages. Uh, and Todd was sort of struck that you know, that it's still stuck with them. They still couldn't, they still thought he could have won if only he made this one decision and now he could never fully let that go. And uh, well, he might be right. Yeah, right. I mean, you still can understand um, why someone would hold on to that. And I don't know if you've ever read the book, uh, Guest of the Ayatollah by Mark Bowden about the Hostage Crisis, which is also a fantastic book. And you're, you, you can understand why he didn't send that extra helicopter. He actually sent more helicopters than you would normally send on that sort of mission. So uh, you understand uh, so it wasn't a, a bumbling move on his part, but nevertheless, he couldn't quite let that go. Did you get that sense when you in talking to him, like there's stuff about this that he just could never fully shake? Well, when we talked, he actually didn't talk about the hostage crisis. When we talked about Kennedy's challenge, he said that if he had um, nominated a... Uh, a judge that Carter, that Kennedy was pushing. He felt like maybe that would have kept Kennedy from challenging him. And I don't think that that's really accurate. I think he was just remorseful that he had not been able to keep Kennedy from, from running in the primary. Um, I just think the events that, that um, cascaded on his head in 79 made it too attractive and appealing for Kennedy to run against him. And um you know, there's not much he could have done. Kennedy says that it was Carter's malaise speech that convinced him to run. But if Carter's poll numbers were, you know, 10, 15 points higher than they were in the fall of 79, uh, that reduces the chances of Kennedy running. There's just, that's just, that's just politics. Um, you know, it's like, it's, they, there are, it's even now, as you talk about, whether there will be a primary challenge to Trump. There probably will be, but the pool of people who will do it is expanded by, by how low Trump's numbers go over the next six to eight to 10 months. And if his pool numbers dive down into really, you know, um, red alert territory, that's when you have people like Mitt Romney who start thinking about running. Uh, if it's just in the you know mid 40s among, or if it's just it's it's around what 80 percent with Republicans. If it's only down about 10 points, and he's still in pretty good shape with Republicans, uh, you might have a Kasich, you might have a Larry Hogan, uh, but you won't have a Marco Rubio thinking about it. You won't have Nikki Haley thinking about it. Well, I mean that's sort of interesting because you know, on one hand, Trump is like Carter, uh, an outsider to the existing party who continues to give the party establishment fits um, and whose poll numbers are not good from any objective standard. Yet I assume Trump's poll numbers amongst registered Republicans is stronger than Carter's was with registered Democrats at this point in time. Is that, is that correct? 
Yeah, I mean, generally speaking, that's very true. Uh, there is a um, there's a tracking poll that the Pew Center has done of every president's support going back to Eisenhower within their own party, and um, as an average, Carter's approval within the Democratic Party was just under sixty percent. And it was higher earlier in his presidency and then kind of dove down as his presidency went on. Um, so it, I, I didn't – I wasn't able to – it's kind of a large uh, you know, graphic, a large span of time covered in that graphic. And I, and I could go back and look at where we were at this point, you know, a year out from the Iowa caucuses. But certainly Trump's support within the Republican Party as an average is higher than Carter's was. And Carter's was the lowest as an average of any president from Eisenhower to Trump. So yes, the, 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 the president's standing within his own party is absolutely vital to whether or not members of Congress start to worry about, you know, is the president going to drag me down and help me lose my seat? Uh, so uh, what, what do you think both parties should take away uh, from this experience? Uh, so there's, there's one, there's the question of, uh, maintaining loyalty within your own party to avoid uh, debilitating primaries and conventions down the line. Uh, I guess there's also the sort of larger question about who are what are these parties? What what are the coalitions that make them up? And are they uh, are they static things, or do they have natural uh, ups and downs and reformulations? And that to some extent, uh, that's out of the individual politicians' control. What's the question, though? Well, uh, do you think that uh, people today should be looking at 1980 and thinking, uh, well, I better get my poll numbers up 10 points so I avoid uh, having a primary challenge? Or is it more uh, people should just be uh, aware that parties are organic things and coalitions inevitably change and, and, and uh, geographical marriages of convenience don't? Don't, don't automatically last, and you should be prepared to uh, ride the changes and not expect you can actually control them. Well, I guess I'm not sure what the what the second part of the question. I'm, I'm not totally clear on that. I mean, I think politicians are always going to be worried about losing their job, um, even though we wish that more of them were were just a little more focused on doing the right thing. Um, that's just human nature. You know, we see it over and over and over again. So um, I'm having trouble connecting to the first part of the question to the second. But I, I think that um, regardless of how much parties change, politicians are always going to be worried about losing their job in a primary or a general. I mean, primaries have become more partisan because of a number of things that have been talked about exhaustively. I'll, I'll, I'll take one more stab. I apologize for being, being meandering. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you think that what happened in 1980 was just a matter of the personalities involved, the ambitions of Carter and Kennedy? Uh, and therefore, if one individual had a different kind of ambition, we would have had a different result? Or was there something um, happening from the ground up, the weakening of the North-South Democratic coalition that made that kind of clash inevitable? Uh, and therefore, looking at today, uh, it's not a matter of what what individual does or doesn't do that there are, that these parties themselves are changing, and therefore some kinds of clashes are inevitable too. Well, I think I think I don't know. What, I'm curious what your thought is. I, I think it's both um, because I think if you look at um, let's say Carter gets the hostages out of Iran and, and beats Reagan. Um, Certainly, if if Carter is able to get the hostages out of Iran close to the election, that that makes that outcome incredibly possible. Uh, a, a big reason why he lost was that it was the year anniversary of the hostages being taken, and the the networks all focused on that that last weekend. And his poll and the the internal tracking numbers in the Carter campaign showed the bottom dropout. Uh, and there's also very credible evidence that the Reagan campaign colluded with the Iranian government to keep the hostages there. So let's say Carter wins in 1980. Uh, that that sort of not only keeps the South or parts of the South probably with 
the Democrats for 1980, it also changes the um, the conversation inside the Democratic Party because in '84 they nominate Mondale, who's yeah, he ran with he was Carter's vice president, but he's certainly more liberal than Carter. '88 they nominate liberal Minnesota, right? And same thing in '88 they nominate they nominate Dukakis on Northern. Liberal. It's not until 1992 that they nominate another Southerner, Bill Clinton, who uh, certainly runs a more Carter-like campaign than Kennedy. He's he's moderate. He's challenging the party's left flank. And so uh, you really have to wonder if Carter wins in 80, uh, how does that change our whole conversation, not just around what works in the Democratic Party, but also about economics? Because um, you know, Volcker is at the Fed at that time. He, he really cracks down on inflation. And uh, Mike Tomaski wrote in the New York Times this weekend about that that period of time, just about how the whole Republican theory of economic growth, you know, uh, trickle down tax cuts, is given a huge booster shot of credibility by the fact that um, the economy turns around that time, during that time and inflation is reduced, even though there's a pretty strong argument that. The reduction in inflation has almost entirely a lot to do with the Fed's policy rather than uh, the Reagan administration's fiscal uh, or tax policy. And that still shapes our conversation around economics and government spending today. When you look at Democrats talking about Medicare for all or tax cuts on the wealthy, uh, a lot of that is made more challenging by the ways that we remember what's worked and what hasn't worked in the past, which sometimes is, is, you know, a mixture of, uh, you know, sometimes the things that get credit for working are not the things that maybe um, really were the cause of economic uh, success. Uh, a fascinating exploration into 1980 with a lot of relevance to today. The book is Camelot and published by 12. Uh, the author is John Ward. Thank you so much, John, for being on New Books and Politics. Bill, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it.